What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Lions of Liberty is home to three shows. Every Monday, we kick off the week with our flagship program hosted by Mark Clare. Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And this past Wednesday, Brian had a great show with the founder of the 10th Amendment Center, Michael Bolden. Definitely check that one out. And of course, every Friday, this show, Felony Friday. You can get all three of these shows delivered very nicely to your phone without doing a thing. If you just subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Overcast or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, there's so many podcasting apps, and I honestly think that we're on all of them now. So do that, please. And also, if you feel like it, if you have time, go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app it is and give us a nice little review Give us a little five-star rating. That does help with the magical algorithms that rank the podcast so uh, we can reach more of the uh, the ears with the liberty coming in the ears. That's what we want, to get a bigger, bigger audience. I have an awesome guest today, and I'm going to introduce him in just a minute. Before I do that, I just want to let you guys know this is the 132nd episode of Felony Friday. That means you'll be able to find the show notes page with links and notes to all the stuff we're going to talk about today at lionsofliberty.com slash ff132. And without further ado, here is my guest. My guest today on Felony Friday is Aaron Kinzel. Aaron is a professor at the University of Michigan, a criminal justice reform advocate, and a formerly incarcerated individual. Aaron spent several months in juvenile detention facilities during his youth and nearly 10 straight years in adult prisons. Upon his release from prison, Aaron was able to leave the life of crime behind, this life that he led as he was a young teenager growing up into his uh, teenage years, and Aaron chose to pursue a, uh, a better future, a brighter future in higher education uh, with community engagement to create safe neighborhoods and to assist the formerly incarcerated to become productive and law-abiding citizens. Aaron, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Aaron. And, you know, when I first heard your story, I knew that I wanted to have you on. It's a pretty unbelievable story, to be 100% honest, to where you came from to where you are today. So I think to give people at home listening sort of an, an idea of really that whole that whole change you've gone through, if you could just start out talking about your youth, your early years, and really uh, what your life was like growing up. Uh, the, I guess like some of my earliest memories go back to the age of like four or five years old. And I never knew my father. Uh, I was born in Toledo, Ohio, and my mama lived in the projects and was just kind of around a lot of people she shouldn't have been around. 
and she grew up in poverty as well. And she struggled to find employment and ended up getting with a lot of men who had criminal histories um, and were actively involved in criminal and illicit behavior, most notably uh, drug dealing and firearms trades. Um, I think when I was around five, she was with a man who was selling drugs and was what I would call like a cat burglar. So like at the age of five, I was actually committing delinquent acts with this man who taught me how to break into homes. So I've got an adult that's teaching me how to pop a lock on a window, pushing me up through windows and houses to like break into places and steal stuff. And like I, I gained a criminal sophistication at the age of five um, by later on mimicking that behavior on my own away from this man, like going into apartments and stealing toys for myself. Because at the age of five, I thought, if you don't have something, you just go take it. And I remember my first police contact being around the age of five where someone had seen me go into an apartment to steal toys. And I ended up getting talk. Uh, these cops come talk to me and they're like, you know, were you in here? Did you do this? And I'm like, no, I already had knew at that age that there was an adversarial relationship between myself and law enforcement to where I lied to these cops that I had nothing to do with this. I don't know anything. The typical seasoned criminal response, like, mm -hmm. I don't know figure it out yourselves, you know? So that was like my entree into the world of um, delinquency and criminality, you know, five-year-old kid. And looking back now, I'm almost 40 is like insane. Like, you know, to go through that experience as a kid. Um, to fast forward, my mother, uh, you know, this guy ended up going to prison. So she ends up getting with another dude who selling firearms and drugs. Like he's a truck driver. He's going interstate commerce getting rid of narcotics and all this other stuff. Very abusive towards my mother, very abusive towards me. I remember waking up seven, eight years old, this man who's um, probably like 350 pounds, six foot two, beating me at night, choking me, um, like when I'm in a deep sleep and I'm just watching him being physically violent with my mother. So now I'm shifting to a new mentality is that not just that criminality is okay, but violence is something that is uh, like a part of, normalcy in my life so i developed um what i call like this hyper masculine and aggressive mindset even as mm -hmm. a child i used to fight my stepdad as a like a seven or eight year old kid but obviously i get my ass beat because he's a huge man and i'm just this little kid uh and a few times i try to stick up for my mother i remember the worst situation with him on one occasion um he pulled a 357 magnum on me and threatened to kill me and then on another occasion, he actually shot that firearm at me as I was running out of the house when I really felt that he was trying to kill me. And you were seven years old at this time. I was like probably eight, I think, seven wow. or eight. I don't remember. It was one of the two. But, I mean, that's the type of crazy shit I went through as a kid. You know, it doesn't take away for stuff I did later on in my life. I'm not trying to take away personal accountability. But, like, I'm currently teaching a juvenile delinquency class at U of M. And what I'm trying to explain to my students is that trauma – is like the underlying cause of, I think, a vast majority of crime and not just the juvenile justice system, but the adult criminal justice system. Kids and adults are traumatized and they convert that trauma and that loss of um, loss of access to resources and stuff to criminality. Mm -hmm. So like if we looked at more ways to like put stuff on the front end and help people with programs and access to resources and give them assistance that they need, like we could reduce a lot of crime just like on the front end. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that after we go through your story, because I yep. think you have some great ideas around that, but just to kind of take this one step further. So 
you had, I mean, really a, a, some terrible, horrible experiences growing up as a child, traumatic experiences. And then how did that parlay itself? So you spent time in, in juvie when you were growing up. So what, like, what types of, of crimes uh, put you in juvie? So I think more like up until that, you know, the seven, eight, I was doing what I would consider more minor delinquent acts, like, you know, stealing. And, and I never was involved in the drug trade or anything like that until my early teenage years. Um, for the longest time, I hated drug addicts because I watched my mother, uh, my stepdad and other men in, their, in her life abuse drugs and become more violent mm-hmm. or alcohol is another one, too. I see that this connection. So I hated drugs for the longest time. But then around age 15, that changed. Uh, I started smoking marijuana, and I want to be very clear here. I do not believe marijuana is a gateway drug. It's just kind of like a coincidence that at that time, uh, friends of mine were smoking marijuana as teenagers, and then we got involved in other stuff. It wasn't a gateway. I just want to be very clear. If anything, marijuana is an exit drug, in my opinion, personally and professionally, like with our opioid crisis. I want to go on a tangent about that. Yeah, let me let me ask you about that. Not that I don't want to go way off on tangent either, because I, yeah, I, I don't. I agree with you. I don't think it's a gateway drug, but I think because it's prohibited, um, yeah. it puts it in situations where you know drug dealers are selling it, and they're selling it yeah. side by side with cocaine, heroin, and meth, whatever else. So in that way, because it's prohibited, it sort of is a gateway drug because of the environment it's sold in. Does that make sense? I don't know if it's a gateway. I think I would push back on that. But like, certainly there's a connection with the illicit trade to where like, there's a connection there. Absolutely. I just don't know if that's like the catalyst for harder drugs. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think it is either. Gateway is probably not the right word. But anyway, I, yeah. I just wanted to, to bring that up there. But continue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we should just legalize everything. And then honestly, <laughs> I agree. have a lot less problems in all honesty. Look at Absolutely. countries that have done that. So at 15, I start getting high. Uh, but then like I'm doing LSD, cocaine, and then like, kind of like you're saying, like the people that were selling weed also had other drugs. Mm-hmm. So like I'm getting exposed to these different things and I'll be, I'm trying everything. Cause like I'm traumatized. And now I really realize the deep rooted reason why people are addicted to drugs is because of the trauma they've experienced in life. A vast majority of people that utilize illegal substances or even get drunk they're not doing it to get high or have fun. That's a very small margin of the population that just does stuff. Right. A lot of people are doing it because of the trauma. They're upset. They're not happy with their lives or what's going on. So they try to like mask it, the pain with drugs. So that was no different for me. Um, but then as a part of that lifestyle, uh, I got involved in selling drugs. So 15 years old, um, I started getting more aggressive and violent, carrying a firearm with me. Uh, the first time I was in the juvenile justice system, I was almost 16, 15 going on 16. I'm at a basketball game. I'm high on marijuana. I had drugs on me and two cops come to this basketball game because a teacher called them on me saying like, look, Aaron's high. He's acting weird. Uh, and then these cops tried to tell me to leave this basketball game at school for high school. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm not going anywhere. I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm like, I just had this adversarial thing. Like no one's going to tell me what to do. And I get into a fight, like a fist fight with two grown men uh, who are officers. And this lasts for like 10 minutes. I think in the beginning, like as a kid, I thought like I was whooping their ass. I definitely like black and one cop's eye and and got some hits in. But like, I think more than anything, they were trying not to hurt me. And they just tried to like, you know, um, subdue me and eventually they roughed me up a little bit because i just kept going they took me to the youth center that night and i spent my first time uh in solitary confinement 
was my first time in the juvenile justice system, 15 year old kid. And then fortunately I got out very shortly thereafter because my mother's uh, husband at that time had connects to like crooked attorneys who flipped that whole situation on me to where like these cops abused me as a kid and it was police brutality, which in all honesty was bullshit. I started that whole thing, but they got it to where they pushed the DA to just have me released. Wow. So that was like kind of a really weird situation where there's some different like areas sometimes where on the wrong side of the law, if you have the right connects with attorneys, even if you're doing some grimy shit, you can get away with it. No different than people that have wealth in this country. There's nobody that's like rich in the penitentiaries. I mean, there's a couple here and there, but like wealth is a driver of getting released or even not getting charged in the criminal justice system. So like from 15, that empowered me. Like I'm like, I can whoop two cops asses. I'm fine. And I got this, like what I call um, this God complex to where I could get away with anything. So now I, I step up my game and I'm on the streets selling drugs all the time. I'm taking guns for my family. Like they're giving me narcotics and saying, here, go get rid of this for me. Or here, you want to make some money? Go stomp on this drug. And I'm doing it. And I'm doing a really good job of it. Like that's one thing with me. I'm, I'm very ambitious and determined, whether it's an illicit economy or a, a, a normal economy. Mm -hmm. I'm very ambitious about my work ethic. And what's fucked up is that I learned that through doing illegal activities as a kid. I think that's a soft skill that I've gained and kept. That's which why I've been more successful in my later years is because I've had that same mindset. I want to like push to the benchmark. What can I accomplish? I think we all got like a, a glass ceiling where, you know, we can get to this far and I just want to push it up to get as far as I can to be mm -hmm. successful. And to my detriment at that time, it just kept getting me more access to the juvenile justice system for a couple aggravated assaults, stolen vehicle. I got caught in one time. Um, so I was in and out of juvie like three or four times. Um, and then fast forward to like 18 when stuff really went down. That was yeah. Really so you, you were actually, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were actually trying to get away from that life when you ended up in really with your most serious charge. Yeah, so absolutely. You were what up in, in Maine. Is that right? Yeah. So when I turned 18, I, I came to this like decision in my mindset. Like I want to get away from my family because they had went from being like these hardcore drug dealers um, to like just straight up junkies and they began to consume their product. They ended up owing a lot of people money that they shouldn't have owed money to mm -hmm. and were just robbing little old ladies, breaking into houses, doing anything they could do to get high. And I'll be honest, like as a kid and a teenager, even to this day, I don't really have any remorse for pistol whipping another drug dealer who was involved in that type of activity. But what I did have a problem with was was going with them sometimes where they were breaking into houses. And at that time, as a teenager, I really understood why would you steal from people that are working hard just so you can get high? Mm -hmm. So like there was this like divergent thing, like where I went left, they went right. I tried to get out of drugs. I tried to um, like sober up a little bit at 18. But my ignorant like youth, I still had a firearm with me for protection. So I ended up going to Maine. Uh, my girlfriend was with me who she took off from home too because she was in a very abusive environment from her parents who were beating her ass all the time and were drug addicts as well. So we kind of connected on that level. And I'm on this magical mystery tour, I call it, to Maine. I end up getting in Maine from Michigan, driving a stolen car. I get pulled over by state troopers 
and this changes my life forever. I decide to um, when the cop comes. Just to pause for a minute, where did so you stole the car? Where did you steal the car from? My girlfriend actually stole the car, and um, she actually came pick me up, which was kind of weird. And in the end, I actually took the the bid for that too, which is a whole other story. But like, she came to pick me up, Mm -hmm. and then I drove the car the rest of the way out of state. So state trooper pulls us over. I'm kind of tweaking out. And also at that time I'm on felony, um, probation at that time for an adult charge for selling narcotics. I got caught by an undercover cop that was trying to bust my family uh, at the age of 17, I think. So I'm on felony probation. I ain't supposed to be out of state and I'm nervous. Mm -hmm. Okay. I got drugs on me. I got a gun on me. Uh, the officer comes up to my left on the driver's side, acting real weird. Um, he's got his hand by his holster and telling me, you know, turn the car off, you know, ID and all this. And I'm just like split second decision. I decide to pull my gun. I fire out the window. Cop goes down. And then within like two seconds out of my right eye from the corner of the back end of the vehicle, there's another dude who has no, um, you know, police gear or anything on. He just starts firing from a nine millimeter Beretta, like 16 times into my car. And he unloads his clip, blows out the back windshield, bullets go singing through the car. Um, And to this day, like forensics did examinations on that car. They don't know how the hell me and my girlfriend are not dead because bullets went right through the seat, particularly in the driver's side. I think there was two or three bullets that went right around my chest area. And I never like ducked or anything like that. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in, like anything, I just think something weird happened that day. I guess I'd be more agnostic than anything. Like maybe there's a God, maybe there's a spirit, maybe I'm an X-Men. I don't know. But like <laughs> bullets flew through that car and I didn't get hit. And thankfully the officer that I shot in that direction did not get harmed either. He dropped. Um, it just freaked him out. I didn't hit him, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the only exchange of gunfire I had. I took off high speed chase. And then what when he's trying to reload, you take off or yeah, like this all happens within like a few seconds. You know, I'm telling it like mm-hmm. it seems like it's a few minutes, but like within seconds. And it's all on a dash cam, too. I think they had it on World's High Speed Chases or something years ago. Mm-hmm. This was back in 97 that this happened. So over 21 years ago. I just had my anniversary earlier in the week, which is kind of weird. So 21 years ago, all this crazy shit went down. So I'm in the, um, I'm on the road. I'm speeding through different towns in rural Maine. I'm trying to head north. Somewhere I know I'm near Canada, so I'm thinking in my mindset, like, as long as I get close to Canada, I'm straight. They're not going to come across and get me. Um, They end up putting out a spiked mat after, like, 12, 15 miles of the chase. Deflates my front tires, which is not like in the movies. You see the Fast and the Furious, where the Mm -hmm. car, like, does this weird maneuver and flips up and down and blows up. It just slowly deflates the tires, so the car starts going like this a little bit. So I went from going, like, 120, 130 to, like, 30 or 40 as fast as I can, you know, it's sparking in the front. So I jumped the car into a potato field and me and my girl get out and we're running. And I'm at um, what's known as Mars Hill Mountain, which is like right in uh, Arusta County, Maine, which you have no idea where the hell that is. No, people no that live there have no idea. Um, it's very close to the border of Canada, basically. Okay. And I didn't know I was that close at that time. So we're in the woods all night long. I found out later that over 100 law enforcement officials were searching for me and my girl. Uh, that include Canadian Mounties, local police, state police, military, the feds were out there. Anybody in that area 
from both sides of the border, which I thought was really weird finding out later on that they had mounted Canadian assistance from their government to find me so quickly. So, um, they didn't so you, you, yeah, you weren't safe if you made it to Canada, like, like you thought. Yeah, no, like, absolutely. Like, you know, as a kid, I was like, I had no, I'm like, oh, I get across. I was just ignorant. I think, oh, oh I get over there. It's like, I, ha ha, you can't get me anymore as a kid. I had no clue of how much, you know, um, force they put into like capturing me. So the next day, my girlfriend walks out towards um, this dirt road because we're getting eaten alive by bugs and stuff. She's like, well, it's been a day. They must have given up. And I'm like, they have not given up. They're not going to stop till they find us. We got to keep going. And so she walks off, starts kind of like running because she's like, well, I'm going up here. You can stay in the woods. So I chase after her and she starts going up on this hill that's on this dirt road. And a car comes by and I'm like right up behind her. And no sooner than that, another cop comes out of this vehicle. It's unmarked cruiser, pulls a shotgun, points it at me and my girlfriend. My girlfriend's in front of me. And now I got another decision to make. I still got a loaded firearm in my pocket, my hands right by my hip. I got to make a decision. Thankfully, I make the right decision. I I slowly just put my hands up and position myself in front of my girl. So, like, now the gun's on me. She's behind me. She's freaking out, screaming. And I'm just like, look, man, I'm done. Take me into custody. And then um, that was my entree into the uh, adult criminal justice system. I'm 18 years old. They take me to a local county jail, charge me with uh, the attempted murder of a state trooper for me firing out the window. Uh, And then, like, seven other felonies on top of that for, like, passing a roadblock, possession of a firearm by a felon. Uh, criminal threat, all these other, you know, what I consider much more minor charges on top of this attempted murder, which holds life in prison as a maximum sentence. So like, I'm freaking out as a kid. Like I, I don't know anything about the law. I'm fighting for my life. I get a, a, a public defender who honestly wasn't the best. He's just some kid out of law school who's never litigated a case before, let alone a, you know, a capital case like this, where, you know, Maine doesn't have the death penalty, but if they did, I would have probably been facing the death penalty. This is a serious case. And we go back and forth for a while. I don't get any offers that I feel are appropriate. Um, I'm getting more violent in the county jail because half my time, I end up staying there a year and a half. Half my time, if not more, I'm in solitary confinement because I'm violent. I'm kind of organizing other kids that are there to like do dirt and be more violent and do shit I shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, I end up going to trial, and I ended up getting a 19-year sentence um, with a split sentence, which means like I would do 11 years straight, uh, and then I get a mandatory parole, but then I have the 19 over my head. So in reality, in the prisons, I only did a little less than 10 years because I earned a little bit of good time. So, so how did you get – you said you didn't have the best legal representation. How did yeah. you go from potential – life in prison down to that sentence? Well, so uh, the other part I missed in the story was that my family, particularly my grandfather, because my mama and the drug dealers were not helping for my legal case at all. My grandfather got together like a few thousand dollars and gave it to uh, a private attorney as a retainer for my trial because I couldn't get a good disposition for a plea bargain that I thought was fair. Um, and then in the end, he, he pushed it and got me you know, I don't still think it's fair to this day because of the, the circumstances of the case. Not that what I did wasn't insane and I shouldn't have been punished, but I just feel as far as legal definition, attempted murder, 
by statute is a substantial step towards the commission of a crime, meaning murder. Mm -hmm. And I felt that since I didn't physically harm the officer or anybody else there, that it was more like reckless conduct or criminal threatening, which is some of the other charges they put on me. And that I should have got five years for less. Yeah, attempt, attempted murder. I mean, you know the law better than me, but that would be more yeah. of a premeditated um, sort of thing. Yeah, right? that too. They they did bring in some evidence that they felt like my girlfriend would end up testifying against me because she was like coerced by the DA that like they always do, which is kind of messed up on the system. Mm-hmm. Either you testify against him or I'm going to charge you as a co-conspirator because she was in the car. They could have gave her, right. you know, all the attempted murder charge, which is bullshit. Yeah, so complete bullshit. It, it is what it is. But like in the end, honestly, I'm kind of glad I got locked up because if I didn't get locked up at that point, I was on the downward spiral to where I might have killed someone or got killed myself or just kept doing stupid shit. Because I was in this mindset with all the trauma that I faced and trauma that I caused that I honestly didn't need to be in society at that time. I needed treatment is what I needed. I didn't need to just get locked in a cage, though. Mm-hmm. That's my problem with the justice system is that we just lock people up and throw away the key and there's no no programming. I just happen to come out of the system semi, you know, like, okay, I guess. What, but what like, do you credit that to? What, why were you able to have this really big mindset change when you were locked up? It, and I don't credit it to the correctional environment, really. I mean, maybe a little bit. I will say this for the main Department of Corrections. They did have some substantially... Um, effective educational programs. So I will give them credit for that. Um, I think the bigger part of my change though was, was one biological. Uh, There's a lot of evidence that shows between the ages of like 18 to 25, we're still developing as Mm -hmm. youth. Okay. We're not fully cognitively developed in the prefrontal cortex that controls impulsivity, you know, a forethought and all this stuff. So I was just aggressive and I, my hormones and all that got me all messed up. And that's typical of a lot of young men around that age. So biology helped change that a little bit. That was the first mindset. I started to have a different perspective on life in my mid-20s. And also I, I attribute a lot of my uh, positive change to lifers in the system. A lot of men that were serving life, most of whom did murder beefs, um, instilled in me the value of education, of community engagement, and just transformation of myself. They pushed me, like, for the first time in my life, I had father figures who I respected because these men were like me just 20, 30 years later who had killed someone, were involved in drugs, abuse, whatever, but they had evolved over, you know, decades, and they had filled themselves with, you know, legal knowledge, policy knowledge, and just literature. And they kind of opened that door for me. They didn't force it down my throat or anything like say, here, you have to do this or else. But they opened the door and I respected them for that. And I started to read about law and policy. I fought my case. I ended up turning away from physical violence. They taught me that physical violence is only necessary if you or a loved one's life is in danger somehow. Mm-hmm. That's the only time. And I still hold this to this day. Like I'm, I'm like safe now, I call it. But if someone tries to harm me or my child, look the fuck out because I'm going to do something to protect myself or like my child or my girlfriend or whoever in me as as you should yeah as i should i mean you know different people have different perspectives on that that's my two cents and i don't feel that that i'm out of line for that i can do what i have to 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 take care but i should never just go punch someone in the face try to shoot someone stab them over an argument or drugs or any other dumb shit that's just like it's not necessary but we artificially create crime in this because like go back to drugs or other things like 
you have illicit economies where violence is seen as you can't go litigate a case. Someone owes you three pounds of marijuana or cocaine or cash. You can't go litigate that case. And, and, and it's not a natural business environment. You got to go shoot someone in the face to go resolve that conflict. It's just ridiculous. We, we're creating crime in this country. Hundred percent right. That's that's what I always tell people with with pro- prohibition of anything. I mean, you, you talk about yeah, absolutely from, from prostitution to to heroin. Um, there's yeah, there's no way if there's any sort of disagreement, there's no way to arbitrate the case other than violence, violence. or violence. Is, so violence is the legal system of the streets. Unfortunately, yeah. that's how you solve conflict. It's, and whoever is the most violent is kind of like out in the streets with the CEO. Whoever has the best attorneys and the best money on the streets, like Verizon, GE, Walmart, they run the shit because they have the cash and the lawyers that litigate and the lobbyists to control commerce. Right. On the streets, you got to be a cartel that's violent, guns, henchmen, killings. That's how you control. That's how you become the big dog. And it's ridiculous. I, I don't know. So, like, that changed me. So I become more educated towards the end of my bid. I took my first college course. So I'm like, let's see, uh, probably like 26 or 27 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm getting real close to my release and I got a mandatory parole. Thank God, because I was not the nicest. I was in and out of solitary. Um, Taking this college course in psychology Mm -hmm. changed my life forever. Um, I ended up getting an A in this class. It was on these old VHS tapes where I would just watch these and do the homework and read a book. Mm-hmm. And I realized this is my out for when I get out on the streets. You know, I can like go to college, learn some skills, and hopefully be accepted in the marketplace. So I end up getting out of prison um, in 2007. So now I'm a 28 year old grown man, but I still had a lot of trauma that I didn't realize from being in the carceral state and never really dealt with a lot of stuff pre incarceration. So I had problems with communication, my emotions. Uh, I was married at that time and my wife and I didn't get along because I was very like, uh, I internalized a lot of shit. So I didn't you, talk. You got much. married while you were in prison or just soon right after? before I got out of prison, I got married. That's a whole other weird story. Um, I ended up meeting this woman who um, was teaching French and I was learning French from some guy that was inside that was from Canada, spoke French fluently. He was teaching me French in prison. But then, like, I ended up meeting this woman that was in the area. We started corresponding. Uh, I was learning French with her. She started to come visit me. We hit it off. And, like, I rushed into something I never should have because it was a disaster. Um, I, I mean, it was great in the beginning. I really loved my wife at that time. and But, like, things just went out of control. We ended up getting a divorce. I have a daughter with her now. But, like, I also have to – she had some issues, too. But I don't even want to get into that. But, like, mm-hmm. my biggest problem why the marriage failed was that I was not open with her. And I had all this emotional trauma that I didn't know how to describe. So when she would like want to talk about something, I'd be like, I don't want to talk or I just go away. I would, I'd hold it in. But now more I'm realizing when I'm reading up and meeting with other people that have done big time in prison, it all boils back down to trauma and how we're not particularly violent offenders like myself. We're, we're conditioned to be hyper masculine, aggressive and violent. And that, that shit is still deep inside. And I don't know how to like open up and be soft per se, not even soft, but like just like open with my emotions and talk about things in a, in a normal human way where I can exchange. Uh, I'm getting better at that now, but honestly, it's been like 11 years. So my theory is this, and I haven't tested this yet, but for every year you do in a, a correctional setting, 
you need that many years at a minimum to kind of get yourself right upon release. So I did almost 10 years in prison and I've been home now 11 years. And in all honesty, this is the first time in my life this last year or so that I've really started to feel right. And I've really been like focusing and, and being more open about wow. some of the shit that I've gone through as a kid. You know, talking about it publicly is one thing, but getting into really deep conversations with loved ones or friends, family is totally different. My name is Dale Kearns, and I'm running for United States Senate in Pennsylvania as a libertarian. I'm a concerned citizen who has had enough. I work as a project manager for an electrical contractor in southeastern Pennsylvania. There I manage large commercial and industrial projects. I'm a husband and a father of two energetic little girls. I'm running to advocate for a society where my girls have more liberty, not less. Will you support our campaign? Unlike my competitors, I'm not a career politician. I don't have millionaire and billionaire donors. I'm running for Senate in Pennsylvania because I want to take the message to Washington that we want government out of our lives. Will you let me be your voice? Let me be the voice that says we will not walk quietly down the road to serfdom. The voice that says we need free market solutions. The voice that says we need to end the failed war on drugs. The voice who will fight for the forgotten man, non-violent offenders wasting away in prison, and addicts who are afraid to speak up and seek the help they need. We are seeking members for our campaign team. I encourage you to apply. We need donations to help us spread the message of liberty across the state. We can go on hoping for liberty to happen, or we can fight together. I hope you choose the latter and join me today. Find out more at DaleKearns.com. Paid for by Dale Kearns for Office. You know, n- not that they're the same thing at all, but it's, it's probably has a lot of overlap when people go to war. Um, you, no, absolutely. It is a form of trauma. PTSD. And, yes. Yeah. So it's the same thing, just like with, uh, you know, people coming out of prison and our society today, there's, a, are you already dealing with the stigma when you're coming out of prison? Plus on top of absolutely. that, on top of that, um, there's really not a support system for you. A lot of people have, you know, support from their family, but society, there's no support system. Same thing we, when our soldiers come back over from overseas and seeing God knows what shit being blown up, all kinds of trauma, and yeah. they're just thrown back in. So with the military, you see this insane suicide rates and with uh, yes. and substance out, abuse too. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so you see, it's a lot of overlap there. I really hadn't thought about that before. But yeah. And actually, um, a lot of my work that I do, I work with a lot of formerly incarcerated vets. Okay. So like uh, the good people in my family, one would be my great grandfather, who's uh, he's 91 year old World War II vet. This is like the only man in my life that was ever a positive influence on me. Uh, and he was traumatized from the war. He was in a tank battalion that went over to Korea right after World War II, right at the cusp of when it was starting to end mm-hmm. uh, and when the Korean conflict started up. And like these vets that I work with, very comparable situation. Like you're saying, they come home from active combat. And I really hate the government for doing this shit. It's one thing to screw people that are prisoners that are out committing crime. That's not right. But like people that serve our country and they come home and they've got issues that are combat related or they're the the veterans affairs are so fucked up. They're not supporting our veterans. They want to send all this money in the department of defense. That's our biggest spender from a congressional standpoint. Mm -hmm. But where the hell is the money for the combat vets or the people that are having issues coming home? It makes me sick that our Congress and that our government is doing this that they'll spend billions and billions and trillions of dollars on missiles and defense, but not the people that are helping to protect our country and our borders. It's just, to me, it's just the biggest scam ever. So I like my little two cents here, anybody, if you don't support veterans and them coming home and you want to put money in department of defense, then fuck you really. Like you you need to put some of that towards people, not little toys. 
100% agree with you. So let's. Uh, we got off on a tangent there, but it was good. I mean, yeah. we, sometimes you need side tangents. I side do that tangents. a lot in class. <laughs> my, my students will tell you. I think you. I think you'll be a pretty fun professor to have. But uh, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So you said you, you got out. Um, you started pursuing education. That first step was it as a uh, you know having your your criminal record. Was it hard to get accepted into a college? How did that work out? <clears throat> So not initially. So I started off in a community college and they don't even ask about criminal. I, I'm, I've, I've only seen it a few times where community college have asked about criminal history. They'll take anybody in all honesty, community college. They just want to make some tuition dollars. It's not about your academic achievement in high school or whatever. If you get a GED or diploma, they're letting you. Uh, I did really well in my associates. I got that in two years. Um, when I did start to struggle was when I went to, um, go from the community college to a four-year liberal arts school. I applied to a couple places. A couple schools told me no because they asked the criminal history question. Um, one school let me in. Uh, I ended up going there. I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in less than a year. So I got that with honors, and I was a part of this Ronald E. McNair Scholars Program, which is from the U.S. Department of Education, the special fellowship that teaches you about graduate school and going on to a doctor, yada, yada. That kind of empowered me to think about going on to grad school. But all this time, so the first three years home, I'm applying to all kinds of jobs, John, and no one will hire me. I can't even get an interview because of my background. I'm checking that box, and -hmm. this is not unique to my story, although I did some real serious shit. Let's be real. Okay, but I never even got to the point where I'm talking about what I did. It's just felon is felon. So someone that attempts to shoot a cop, I'm here. That's pretty high. Someone down here that, like, got a marijuana charge from, like, 1969 during the hippie movement as a grandma now, 40 years later. It's the same. It doesn't even matter. It's felony is a felony. They're, felonies are forever, basically. So uh, I, it kind of upset me, you know, and I'm trying really hard, and I'm getting honors in school. I'm doing great. I'm starting to develop my communication skills a little better. I'm doing, you know, all right. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to go to grad school. Maybe then I'll get an opportunity. How were you able to, to, to pay just to, for your living expenses, stuff like that? I, I was just living in poverty, dude. Like I ended up, fortunately, when I first came home, um, one of my grandparents, I'll be honest, illegally got me an apartment because I could not apply. That's another problem with housing for people coming home. Very rarely will, will they allow you to live somewhere if you have a criminal history. So my grandparent had got me a housing uh, set up for a few months. I stayed there for free, which was awesome. They took, and most people don't have that. So I had a hell of a lot of privilege there to get that opportunity and have that trust that, you know, I'm not going to go sell dope or do whatever. They gave me cash to help me originally. Um, when I was in that associates program, my wife had actually found a teaching job right across the street through K through 12 private education. And then I was just getting Pell grants and student loans. That's all we had. Like, I think her income was like maybe 15 grand a year. And then I was getting a couple extra grand here and there from student loans and um, Pell Grants. That's it. Like, we were living at the poverty threshold. Um, At that time, we couldn't get um, assistance from a minor child at that time to get food stamps. So I couldn't even get medical coverage or food stamps for like the first five years out, I think. I couldn't get any of that coverage until my wife got pregnant when I ended up getting in grad school. So fast forward back to that, I get into the University of Michigan for a graduate program. Okay. Uh, and then like in the middle of that program, my wife gets pregnant and now we're eligible to get healthcare coverage through Medicaid and food stamps. So that helped us out a little bit better. So now we're kind of like moving on up in the poverty scale. We've got extra food on the table. 
we got a baby on the way. And this kind of freaking me out because like, as a man, it's really hard. And this is something like I'm used to like being able to provide or take care of my, and I have a loved one now that I can't even support because it's, it's I, kinda, I can't get a job. It's kind of crazy. I mean, so, and I, I did realize the system was set up like this, but I'm just thinking yeah. about it more now. So you have people like, like yourself, you're going through, you know, coming out of prison, living in poverty. And then in order to get this little bit of government assistance, you're, it's encouraging you, incentivizing you to have a kid, which yeah. one could argue that a lot of people in that circumstance should not be having kids. Um, it's because yeah. you're living right at the poverty line, but that's the sort of what the system incentivizes. Yeah. It's a little different now. I think now you can get, um, they changed the law to where you just have minors in the household. They don't have to be your kid. Um, or even just adults can get uh, food stamps or healthcare. Now, if they're below mm-hmm. the pot, they change the law. But now they're just changing because of Trump's executive order to where you have to have work requirements, which I, I can understand to an extent, but like there's mm-hmm. no jobs. If you're not really put it, create a federal job system. If you want to have people out work that are able-bodied, create a federal system, guarantee them a job. Let's put some of those billions and billions of dollars in our debt towards that. You want to get people off welfare, guarantee them a job because there's no jobs in, in the, the industry sector anymore. The big three automakers, that's all gone overseas technology is 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 off like in the stratosphere now there's no more jobs anymore people can't even find work if they wanted to but like for me so like the formerly incarcerated like myself i'm struggling even more than just the average person that can't find a job because of the economy this was around the era too that uh in 2008 when we had the housing crash and all the stuff fishy stuff going on with the banks so like in 2011 my daughter's born i'm finishing up this master's program in 2012, I've got my kid. Um, I actually finished my master's. I still can't get employed. So now I have a master's degree from the University of Michigan. I'm six years out, and I was on parole this whole time, too. So that's another barrier, too, that I am going into, um, where I got to go report, do drug drops, alcohol checks, all this stuff on a biweekly, monthly basis, depending on, you know, the attitude of the, you know, the administrator at that time. Um I'm, I'm frustrated. So I'm like, well, I'm going to apply to a PhD program. I get into uh, this school called Western Michigan University for a doctorate in sociology. For the first time ever, I come out of what I call the convict closet um, and am like forthcoming about my criminal history, tell my story a little bit like I've told you mm-hmm. and say, look, I feel that I want to get into like sociological elements and government elements to help people like myself come home. Because I know this intimately. Who better to research this stuff than someone who's lived this since they were a child? They bought it. They were like, this is awesome. They thought it was cool. They accepted me. No no problems with me having a record. I start that uh, program. Honestly, I didn't like it. So, yeah, I'm reading uh, stuff from Karl Marx, Durkheim. And although that some of that stuff is interesting, I did not want to read eight books on, you know, the Communist Manifesto and all this right. stuff that's telling and social you know, social facts of crime, like suicide is a social fact from Durkheim, which is interesting, but like, I already know this shit from living it as a kid. I don't need to read some book from a hundred, maybe that sounds arrogant, but like, why do I got to read this book from a hundred years ago to tell me about how crime is social when I already know mm-hmm. this, you know, see right. what I'm saying? So I just felt it wasn't practical for me, but I explained this to like, you know, my faculty that are there, their understanding. They're like, well, we're going to give you a job. They offered me a position to teach. And that was my first job offer. Six years home, that's amazing. I get offered a, a position to teach at a university. 
and they know my background, so I didn't have to fill out anything. They already know I'm a felon. They just, here, give me your ID. We need that for HR purposes. Boom, I got hired. Uh, and if I didn't have these faculty members help me out, honestly, like I would be screwed. So that got me on a positive pathway. I taught there for three years as an instructor of record. So basically, that's just someone who's not tenure track or tenured. I'm, I'm on a part-time contractual basis to teach. I'm doing the same thing as people that have been there 20, 30 years, though, teaching classes. I'm doing great. I love it. I love my students. I love the interaction and able to give them that real-world knowledge. I take them on these prison trips and, and bring in speakers that I know have been in the system or drug addicts and, and have kind of evolved. And so they're, like, changing their mindset to see, like, what is a felon now? Well, a convicted felon could be teaching your class. A convicted felon might be running their own business. It's just people that get opportunities are the ones that can change their lives. I was given opportunity, and I have some ambition on top. It's not just opportunity. you got to have the ambition and the, and the willpower to go after that. Um, I dropped out of Western Michigan. I didn't like that sociology again. So I went back to the University of Michigan. One of my best friends talked me into this doctorate of education program which seemed to be much more um, connected to the work I want to do, which would be um, curriculum development and training. So now I'm learning about education and how to like transfer knowledge, which is improving my professionalism teaching as an instructor, but also I'm able to develop training modules and different things for incarcerated people. Mm -hmm. So I'm going back and forth in the prisons and juvenile systems, developing modules or training regimen and curriculum to help people prepare when they come home. Perfect. I mean, I don't know how to transfer knowledge just organically, but I'm learning the structure of how to transfer that knowledge in a, in a, in a way that people absorb it more quickly. Right. So that's where I've been uh, since um, after the third year uh, coming home. So like, I want to say like 2015, um, I get this gentleman who's a judge Donald Shelton. He's a former Washtenaw County uh, judge. He's at the university of Michigan starts running our criminal justice program. I end up working for him as a grad assistant, helping him with this criminal justice seminar. And I basically got him a bunch of money and funding and helped him with this. He was really impressed with that. We had a couple conversations one time. He ended up, uh, it was being an alum from Western Michigan. That's where he started his undergrad career. Uh, and we just start chit-chatting. And he's like, well, why are you going all the, if you live in Dundee, which is just south of Ann Arbor, Michigan, why are you driving two hours to work in Kalamazoo? And I explained to him, well, I have some issues and barriers that kind of stopped me from finding he says, why don't you just come over here and work for me? I'm like, well, I would love to do that, sir. But like, there's again, so I start going into my conversation, mm -hmm. telling my background, his eyes bug out a little bit. And he's like, Whoa, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, that's serious. And so he had, like, he'd well, heard, he'd heard none of your backstory to that point. No, he had not heard it because okay. like at that time I was open about it a little bit, but not as much as like I am now because I was just a student on campus mm -hmm. at that time. Like now as a faculty member, I'm really out. Like a lot of people know about my history, but at that time he didn't know only a few people at the university knew. And he's like, I don't care. He says, you know what? He says, you seem like a bright young man. You're obviously got good references at Western. He says, I got a job position opening up in the fall. He says, apply for it. And uh, I'm going to give you thoughtful consideration. In all honesty, I thought this guy was bullshitting me. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear from him for months, but then like I see this job post come open. He sends me an email as a reminder. He's like, Hey, make sure you apply. I apply true to his word. He pulled me in. So now I'm a faculty member at the university of Michigan, Dearborn campus. 
and I'm teaching uh, crim and CJ courses, corrections, juvenile delinquency, policy classes, you name it. Uh, and I'm at a 50% appointment, which gives me health benefits and other like life and all these other things, which is great. And I'm further developing my network because that's gotten me consulting jobs, contractual work, just because of that University of Michigan brand. Right. I've been able to brand myself more in a way as someone who's knowledgeable uh, and has expertise in certain areas in corrections and education. So I'm thankful to, for him to giving me that opportunity and the University of Michigan, in all honesty, because they asked the question, too. I'm going to put them on Front Street, but they still let me in. They let mm -hmm. me in for two graduate programs, despite my criminal history. And they have employed me for the last three years now. I've been working there for three years. Um, but they still ask the question. But at least with them, I got to give them credit. Like, they go on a case-by-case -case basis. I know that they have, like, refused to let some people into school and employed there because of their, their background circumstances. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm happy that I'm giving them. Yeah, that's, that's important to give the, the university credit because I've had other guests on who, I mean, one of their biggest struggles, people that want to pursue higher education or they maybe they have an under, undergrad degree and want to be able to go to uh, get a master's degree and are just blocked. They, they, they have nowhere to go. So absolutely. That's, I mean, we need, that's part of that stigma. We, we need more universities to step forward. So, so definitely praise them for that, for sure. Just, I, I guess, a follow-up question to... To talk about how, so looking at your path here, what you've been through, um, and where you are today, just what are some ideas, what are some thoughts that you'll have on ways to uh, sort of break down some of these barriers to make it easier for people to pursue a similar path that you have? To get more, to, I guess, put it this way, to get more people who have really struggled and suffered in the criminal justice system to actually take part in becoming a solution to, uh, to, to what the criminal justice, justice system has become. Okay. So that's kind of a twofold question. So I'll tackle sure. like the, the barriers coming out and how we can smooth the, that transition, the road back home. Like, so that would be, um, create pathways for housing, create pathways for, um, a hand up, not a hand out. If you take someone out of society for 10, 20, 30, even a year in all honesty, and you expect them to just jump into the workforce, and like be productive and then not go back to committing crimes to survive. That's the stupidest shit I've ever heard of in my life. Mm -hmm. So if you can spend 35 grand to 85 grand on average, that's roughly, you know, the range. Some States charge $80,000 upwards to incarcerate our state on average in Michigan, roughly 35,000. If you average all the security levels together, you can spend that kind of money on someone on a yearly basis to incarcerate them. And you don't have any money to have a transitional housing for them that you're setting them up for failure. New statistics from the Bureau of Justice statistics show that 83% of people now, when you go out nine years post-release, 83% are going back to prison. That's our recidivism rate in this country now. And if that isn't a fucking shame on this nation, I don't know what is. And it's not, you can't put all that on the people coming out of prison. You're setting people up for failure. There's a lot of people like myself that want to do good, but you don't give them an opportunity. You don't give them a little bit of, uh, you know, food assistance or, or even like a guaranteed job, at least temporarily. Even if it's just for a few months or a year as a transition, that would cost like maybe 10, 20 grand per person to help them out initially as a transitional phase. And then people are going to argue and say, well, my kid don't get that. Well, your kid has not been oppressed their whole life and it did not just do 10 or 20 years in prison. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I agree. 
people that are struggling on the streets that are not committing crime, we need to have pathways for them too. I'm, I'm all for that, but we got to do both. We got to help people on the streets that are law abiding citizens that are struggling, that are oppressed, that are marginalized, that are segregated in our urban city centers. Uh, we got to help them, but we got to help people coming out of the joint too, because if we don't, we're going to exacerbate mass incarceration to this point to where we're going to be like the fucking Gestapo and we're just going to lock up everybody. We already have roughly 25% of our population, over 70 million people have a criminal justice record, whether that's an arrest, probation, conviction, almost 70 million people on average, there's stats that show that. That's a lot of people. We got 320 million roughly. I think we talked about it earlier. I mean, one way to to help to solve this problem is to end the war on drugs. I mean, legalize all these drugs, bring that all out of the shadows and uh, let, I mean, uh, in part, allow the market to regulate stuff. I mean, if, if you're going to have um, these drugs sold legally or sold through, uh, you know, pharmacies or whatever, there, there can be different, different ways, different venues, but to take that power away from the cartels and the gangs and the really these, these violent networks of people, that's that's half the not half the battle, but that's a big part of the battle right there. Would you oh, stop say locking this battle up? for sure? You're, you're yeah. definitely right, John. I'm with you 100, percent bro. Um, like you, if we did that, you're right. Like it, and these all they were like, well, well, what are the cartels going to do next? They're going to organically dissolve. Yeah, maybe they'll take some of that money and get into some type of like legitimate industry. Who cares? I'd rather have them go finance like some like project or something building or oil refining, whatever the hell they want to do, then out shooting and murdering people in the streets. Come on, think about that. Yeah, these people, cartels and gangs, drug dealers, these are entrepreneurial people. They're highly motivated people that part, I mean, the reason why they've gone down this path, it's maybe a lot of it is how they grew up or like like yourself, it's what you saw growing up. It's it, it was yeah. the path to make money. So that's why they did it. If that goes away- it's a lucrative marketplace too. Yeah, it is, absolutely. If that goes away- a lot of them will find their ways into other other businesses for sure. No, I totally agree, man. And you got so many people, uh, just like myself. That I, that's what I often tell my people that I talk to in the prison system is that entrepreneurial spirit will gain you access to the marketplace. If you can't get a job, make a job for yourself. Okay, that's the best thing you can. And use those soft skills, those communication, those drug dealing skills, whatever. But do it legitimately where you can start up a business. Maybe it's just cutting lawnmowers, you know, grass yards or snowplow or, or whatever simple thing or a food cart or something like that. Simple. Make a little bit of money on a normal hustle. Uh, the second phase like of your question, like what can formerly incarcerated people do to kind of like change this system? Well, that's a big thing I'm a proponent for. I have aspirations to go into Congress someday and I want to shake up the system and politics uh, I want to empower others like myself who have been justice involved or their family members because they've been like vicariously, you know, touched by the system as well by having a loved one in the system. We need to shift up the policymakers. And, I'm sorry. And I don't want to like put, you know, eyes on everybody, but both political parties do this. I, I'm really centrist view. I'm independent. I think I lean a little more left sometimes, especially with social issues. Uh, but like, I'm also like a little bit on the right with, you know, limited government, you know, in the free market, stuff like that. I'm pretty much centrist. I think you might be a libertarian the way you just described yourself. Yeah, potentially. I I, I do follow some of their stuff, but like, they're both fucking you. And if you think the left is the only one screwing you, but no, it's the right. 
whatever side polarized, that's all just smoke and mirrors. They're both screwing everybody in this country right now because it's not even public policy anymore in this nation. It's corporate policy. Who's got the most money? Who's got the most power to fund these campaigns to run this country? And it is not in my best interest, your best interest, or anybody else in this fucking country unless you're a CEO or the child or grandchild heir of one of these CEOs. And that's a fact. If you don't believe that, I'll throw a million pages of documents at you, facts that have proved that. Um, so what can the formerly incarcerated do to change that mindset? So like I said, 70 million people have been touched by the system. That does not include their families. If you include the families of those 70 million people, that's easily over half of this population in the United States. If these people would mobilize, and this includes people in the deepest, darkest trenches of poverty, working class, even people that are small business owners, I don't even care about the big corporations, but I do care about like some of the private foundations and philanthropists that have big money like Warren Buffett or, or Bill Gates that are throwing money, George Soros, et cetera, et cetera, throwing money towards these social justice issues. We need to mobilize and become a voting block. That's how we change this country. You got to get people to register for vote. You got to get people to run for local elections. It's not even Congress really that's going to make the biggest changes. It's the local elections that will change 100%. this country. Because if we get enough local changes across the nation, eventually we're going to have this political atmosphere where organically we will start to change Congress. They're going to not have a choice because the states will have more control and autonomy than going over this federal bullshit where we're just handing out money to the select few. And then eventually take over Congress and get control over the government and minimize federal impact. We don't need all this federal oversight for shit. States need to have more autonomy. Like marijuana is the perfect example of this. Why the fuck should the government, the federal government say the state of Michigan cannot have medical marijuana? Well, assholes, our voting block said, and a majority of our voters say we want it. Who the hell are they to say, no, we can't. And Jeff Sessions and Trump are saying this is blah, blah, blah. Trump has kind of changed his mentality now because it's the new hotness that he might support marijuana regulate, you know, He's gone, like, back, he's gone back and forth and back and forth back on and that. forth. But, like, they have no business going into states' rights. The only thing the federal government is there for is for a couple things. One, national security, first and foremost. We got that covered. Ain't nobody touching us, okay? Two is interstate commerce. We just want to make sure that the states play nice together. That's really it. That's the only thing that they really should and, – and, and, honestly, they shouldn't even be collecting a tax base. That should be broken off to the states. 100%. If it's Florida, it's Michigan, that's our business. That We don't need all this extra money. There should be another way that they can raise money. And that's, that's, the, that's the way – I think everyone has the same complaint. There's too much money in politics. These politicians yeah. are bought and paid for by the corporations. And you nailed it right there. A lot of people don't realize the way to end that is to localize everything. Bring it into yeah. local communities. And really, those decisions – the more decisions that you can uh, – make at the local level or the community level, the state level, the better. And um, that's going to eliminate this, uh, the corporate influence, the, uh, the corporate government influence that, that these uh, big CEOs and these people have that have, do not have any of our self-interest at heart. It's all no, about the bottom line. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And the bottom line is those can't, they, they're not even working on issues in Congress. They're working on like right now, as we're getting for the, the, these midterm elections, like everybody's just pulling cash. They're not writing policy up or trying to figure out the problems that are going on. They're just worried about getting the next few million dollars to make sure they get reelected. We need to like exactly. citizens United decision from the United States uh, Supreme court. 
is probably the worst policy that we've had in decades. You're going to have unlimited money be flowing in from corporations and big spenders. We need to take money out of politics, period. I think like there should be a cap, maybe like 10 grand or something. That's like the most anybody can get. With social media, there is no reason why you need $100 million to run for Congress. There is no reason at all to have that type of campaign contributions. If you are out in the community, you can take 10 grand in your little district, mm -hmm. and travel around and meet people and talk to the voting base, not worry about these lobbyists and these corporations. That's what's screwing our country. Again, it's all it's financially driven system. Well, what they do is, I mean, I'm learning more about this because I'm a, I'm a libertarian and I'm managing the campaign for the U.S. Senate candidate in Pennsylvania. Cool. And we don't have much money. I mean, we have a little bit of money, but our social media reach, we're, we're starting to make an impact. But That's I'll great. see the, the Democrat and Republican candidate you know, bringing in tens of millions of dollars. And what they do, a lot of it, they just spend it on building up this huge staff, just employing this group yeah. of um, j just bloodsuckers around them that, yeah. do, that do nothing. I um, agree. Yeah, you, you it's don't yet. Crony, it's this crony stuff. Yeah, everybody. You support me. You get me a little bit of a voting base. I'll give you a job. Your sister a job. Your brother a job. Whoever. You're absolutely right. right. And that's money that like we could be putting back into community development. You know, if you get a hundred million dollars for a small district, a congressional district, a hundred million dollars in a small area that's like maybe half the size of a county. You know the change that that could make in a community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That would be profound. But no, we want to piss that away every two years for these House representatives. It's just, it, it makes me sick. It really does. And, and people are not woke, John. And that's what my biggest thing that I like love about my job is that I have no filter. I can go off on these tangents. And, and, and these students hear this and they're like, oh, my God, their mind is blown. They're like, what do you mean they can just pay off senators and representatives? I'm like, it's legal. Like it's, it's legalized bribery. You get a hundred million dollars for a campaign. Look at, um, what's his name? Um, speaker of the house, Paul Ryan. He's about ready to get out of here. But like the Koch brothers gave him half a billion dollars days after he signed that fucking tax bill that saves them billions of dollars. If that is not fucking bribery, I don't know what the hell is. And it happens every day. I don't want to just throw the light on them, but that was pretty profound. Here's half a billion dollars, bro. Days after that big tax bill came through under the Trump administration, like really, and it's like all in open. Nobody says a fucking thing. I think I've seen it on like maybe three articles, maybe in USA Today, Washington, and then it like dropped half a billion dollars just bought the Speaker of the House. But it ain't just him. I don't want to tag the Republican Party. The liberals are doing it too, and everybody else is getting all these cash benefits. It's just I don't. Know. And we, we got to wrap this up, but yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and the media is playing a part. They'd rather talk about Stormy Daniels and, and God knows what yeah. else. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, Aaron, but before I let you go, I uh, just want to give you a chance. If you have anything you want to plug or any last words you want to give uh, before uh, before we sign off here. Well, I just want to say to you, I appreciate you having me on and appreciate your work. Some of your podcasts are great. Uh, I think it's a great way to kind of like um, change the culture mindset of people like myself that have been justice involved and how utilize us as a potential solution. I, I, I hate having people used as a token convict, but like have people that are justice involved, uh, inform policy, help you make choices to where all of us together can mobilize this huge voting block and change this country. So it's representative like our founding fathers intended, where it's representative of the people, mm -hmm. not corporations. So that would be like my final thought. 
And, you know, just like don't judge a book by its cover too. like get to know people a little bit deeper and have a conversation with people. And, and I think diversity is important in this country. A lot of us that are from different races or socioeconomic backgrounds, we kind of other people and we don't have that opportunity or take the opportunity to kind of learn about others. We're much more similar than we are different. And if we just kind of talk to each other, the working class, poor class, small business, et cetera, we would really realize again how we're all getting screwed by the government. I'm not anti-government. I'm anti-people that are running this government who are corrupt. So, Well, I agree with you, Aaron, and thanks for, uh, for coming on the show, sharing your story, and, and talking about these very important subjects. Thanks, John. Have a good right, one. Man. I look forward to seeing the episode. We'll see you. Talk to you soon. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that show with Aaron Kinzel. Um, just an incredible story. Uh, as soon as I heard Aaron's story, I knew I had, to, I had to have him on Felony Friday to see really, you know, I, I knew his background, how he had a rough life growing up, how that culminated in that crazy uh, police encounter with the chase and the that gunshot story from the car those rounds fired fired into his car and him and his girlfriend somehow lived a crazy story. And to come out of that unscathed, spend time, of course, spend time in prison. But then after that, to be able to turn your life around and find the, really the, the motivation to apply himself and get, uh, you know, under undergraduate degree, a master's degree, working a PhD, uh, and to become a, a professor. It's, it's incredible. It's a great story, and it is a story that needs to be shared. So please, guys, if you enjoyed this episode with Aaron Kinzel, please share it. Share it in groups on Facebook. Share it all around the world because stories like this need to get out. And, of course, there's going to be libertarians out there who push back, and they'll say, John, you know, you should have challenged Aaron when he was talking about there need to be government programs to help to help uh, prisoners reintegrate into society, uh, blah, blah, blah. And you know what? No, I shouldn't have, because I'm not going to push back, back, because I'm not going to push back on my guests during an interview. It's not a time to have an argument. It's not a time to have a debate about uh, the issue at hand. Aaron and I, along with Everyone else who knows anything about the criminal justice system knows that there is a huge freaking problem. And that problem, Aaron and I obviously agree, that problem really, a part of big part of it stems from uh, the war on drugs, the prohibition of drugs. Just ending that, uh, a coalition around that of progressives and libertarians and you know, people from the, the Green Party or, and even conservatives are coming around to it. Even ending the war on drugs, that would be huge. That would massively reduce this issue and I think would allow us to just shift some resources around that are in the criminal justice system, in the prison industry, and tweak that and shift it around into, uh, towards reintegration, helping people who are locked up for uh, violent crimes to be able to reintegrate into society. Because at the end of the day, it is a public safety issue. If someone goes to prison for murder, if they go to prison for armed robbery, if they go to prison for whatever, and if they are going to get out eventually, you know, you can put your head in the stand and say, just keep them in prison forever, but they're going to get out. Do you want them to get out and have some skills and be able to uh, conform and uh, add value to society? Or would you rather they just get dumped back into society, no skills, can't get a job, can't find housing, and just see what happens? That's the worst idea ever. 
whoever agrees with that approach is a moron. That's, that's really all you can say. So while Aaron and I differ, well, you know, I think all libertarians probably differ on that from Aaron, that we want more of a free market, a private approach to helping those people um, to reintegrate into society. And you guys are going to love my guest next week. I'm going to bring on a guest who is actually doing that from the uh, the private sector, has, has started a program that is helping people transition out of prison back into society through courses and, uh, and things like that. Uh, he's written a book about it. So you're going to love next week's episode. You already loved this week's episode. <clears throat> Excuse me. Please share this show, guys. Um, the only reason I keep doing this show is because of you people out there watching and listening and our Patreon support and our Patreon supporters. So please, guys, consider uh, becoming a Lions of Liberty Pride member. Uh, Join on Patreon, become a supporting member for as little as $5 a month. You can get access to all of our bonus content, all that good stuff. You can get merch and stuff when you get up to $10 and $15. At that $15 level, you get our daily, Monday through Friday, News link dump, which is put together by Howie Snowden. It's absolutely incredible. Um, You'll be the most informed person in your friend group. I guarantee it without a fact. Um, You'll know everything that's going on. Howie leaves no stone unturned. I don't know how he puts together all these news links, but it is fantastic. 25, you get all the other stuff. Plus, you get more merchandise. Plus, you get a conference call. And then, of course, at $100 per month, you get to advertise on Lions of Liberty for the greatest deal going on advertising. You get to advertise on one show per week for $100 per month. That is so far under the going rate, it is absurd. But we're still going to offer it to our listeners because we love you guys. So if you have a project or something like that you want to advertise, reach out. 100 bucks a month. Bam. You can reach a bunch of people. So... That's all I got. Hopefully everyone enjoyed the show. Hopefully you are enjoying the Lions of Liberty podcast. Please share it around. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.